When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jessica Kale, and I am so glad to be back. We were away for longer than we wanted, but as it happens, I was quite a bit sicker than we thought. But the good news is that we're back and we're still alive. So today's episode is the beginning of season two. This season is going to be a little different from the last in two important ways. While I am still recovering, we're going to be on a bi-weekly schedule, not ideal, I know, and I'm not happy about it either. But if I could hotwire my central nervous system into functioning at full capacity immediately, well, for you, baby, I would. <sighs> but history waits for no one, or something. The show must go on, and go on it shall, with a little help from our friends. Now, this season is going to be all about those friends. For the next little while, we're going to be focusing on interviews with some of the most exciting authors and historians we know. We are thrilled to kick off the season with the incomparable Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris. Lindsay is the author of The Butchering Art, Joseph Lister's Quest to Transform the Grisly World of Victorian Medicine, and her TV show, The Curious Life and Death of, was on the Smithsonian Channel. Lindsay's new book is The Facemaker, a visionary surgeon's battle to mend the disfigured soldiers of World War I. It tells the incredible story of pioneering plastic surgeon Dr. Harold Gillies, his brave patients, and the other multi-talented medical heroes who made his work possible. The Facemaker is out now, and I was so excited to get to talk to Lindsay about it ahead of its release. Without further delay, here's my conversation with Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris. So, Lindsay, thank you so much for being here today. We're so glad to have you. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm a big fan of your work. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, likewise. So uh, your new book out now is The Facemaker. Um, now, of course, I say out now. We're doing this a little early, but by the time we air this, it will be out. So uh, you guys won't have to wait too long. Um, my goodness, I was up all night reading this thing, and it is an absolutely incredible book. I can't imagine how much research she must have gone into it. Thank you so much. You know, um, I'm kind of, I'm a little bit worried about fans of the butchering art. My first book, which is about Victorian surgery, how are they going to take to the face makers? So it's really wonderful to hear this. I mean, tonally, it's a little bit different. You know, when you're talking about 19th century surgery, there's a bit of humor in it because of the showmanship with these surgeons, but there's nothing funny about World War I. Um, and I really lean heavily into the violence and to what it was like to be in those trenches to receive one of these facial injuries, because I think it's really important that people acknowledge the, the horrors of modern conflicts and what it does to the body. Yes. And those details, they're so visceral. You know, it feels like you're there. Um, I feel like in, in a lot of TV and everything, you get this very kind of sanitized, very uh, mm. kind of heroic ideal of this time, but it wasn't anything like that at all. I mean, I can't imagine what these people must've gone through. 
Yeah, they said I, in the prologue, I said something, I quoted someone saying that you could smell the front before you could see it because of the dead bodies. Um, and it was just a horrific time. A lot of these men, a lot of these men were boys, actually, you know, and they were heading into a conflict they had no clue about. And I knew what I wanted to do was to drop the reader right into the midst of the action. And so what I did was I started with this guy named Percy Clare who gets shot in the face. And I wanted readers to understand that it was actually really difficult to get off the field when you received a facial injury, because these stretcher bearers, they, they had to make split second decisions. Remember, they become targets themselves the moment that they step out onto the battlefield. So a lot of times with a facial injury, anybody who's received any kind of minor cut will on their face will know this. It bleeds a lot. It's very vascular. And so it looks quite ghastly, even though it's survivable. And so a lot of times the stretcher bearers would just pass these men by. And in some cases they laid on the field for days, literally days without a jaw, unable to scream for help. So I wanted to make sure that the reader was aware of the horrors of that experience. And then just how hard it was to get off the field and then to get into the hands of Harold Gillies, who's the surgeon whom the book is about, who founds um, a hospital dedicated to facial reconstruction at this time. And, and those, those details, wow, you know, you, you can, um, of course you can really picture it, which is, I mean, awful, but also it looks such an achievement, you know, to, to make yeah. that real. And this is something that I feel like not a lot of people have really talked about. Um, and even in the book, you mentioned, of course, he didn't really get his due, you know, for, for years, yeah. um, so, you know, people will, you know, kind of talk about like the soldiers, but a lot of times they, they overlook the medics. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, in fact, there's a quote and I have it here before me because I, I didn't want to mess it up, but there was a surgeon, a British surgeon who said that men who save life never get the same appreciation and reward as those whose business it is to destroy it. And I really hope that the face maker goes a little way to towards remedying this because I think it's true that we don't talk necessarily about the medics and about the doctors and the nurses who work to help these soldiers during times of conflict. And we're seeing the return of modern of, of a, an old school warfare, I should say, in Europe right now through the conflict in Ukraine. And I can't help as a medical historian, but think about the damage that's being wrought on these bodies and the men and women who try to help these people in the midst of this conflict. So I hope that it really paints a, a very vivid picture of what that was like in 1914 for these soldiers. And of course, um, since this is something that isn't really portrayed, you know, the, the only example I could really think of in, in, you know, TV was like in Boardwalk Empire, you know, there's, there's the one character who has the facial injury. So, but this book, of course, you, you talk about how common this was, how mm -hmm. much of a problem was this? Well, the nature of warfare at this time led to lots of facial injuries. So men were maimed, they were uh, gassed, they were burned. Some were even kicked in the face by horses. Before the war was over, 280,000 men from France, Britain, and Germany alone suffered some form of facial trauma. So this was oh an immense God. challenge for the medical community. Boardwalk Empire, a lot of people bring this up. I actually haven't seen the show, but I've seen clips of Richard Harrow's character wearing the tin mask. And I do talk a bit about the masks in this book because the masks were really important to disguising the disfigurement at this time. Um, they were, I, in fact, I, I did a thread on Twitter recently about this and people really love the images because in a still photo, they look very realistic. But mm -hmm. if you were sitting across from someone wearing these masks, of course it would be unsettling because they're, they don't move like a face, they're expressionless. So a lot of times these men hated the masks. Um, they were fragile, they were uncomfortable to wear. So I always like to remind people that these men wore the mask for other people. They didn't wear it for themselves because people were really biased against facial differences at this time. And I use the word disfigured as well throughout the book. And I 
worked in consultation with a wonderful disability activist named Ariel Henley, who's the author of a book called A Face for Picasso. And we discussed that term because in the disability community, that might not be an appropriate term that you would use today. But in 1914, these men were disfigured to the people who were looking at them, and they faced real biases as a result. For instance, if you left the hospital grounds, you were forced to sit on blue benches so that the public knew not to look at you. So this is a really terrible um, aspect of the disfigurement. And there are photos in the book. I don't know if you actually saw the photos because they weren't integrated into the advanced copies. Okay, I'll, I'll send you the, the, the digital insert. Um, I do include photos, patient photos, um, and I think it's important that we look at them today. I didn't want to put them on the metaphorical blue bench, but I also wanted to make sure we weren't just voyeuristically looking at these men. So I decided not to include any photos of men who died in Gilly's care, who weren't able to complete their reconstruction. But otherwise, many of the patients are featured in the book. And that's incredible. Did any of the stories uh, stand out to you more than others? Well, I mean, Gilly's worked on hundreds and hundreds of patients. So I only pick, I, I think I pick about eight or nine that I really flesh out. Of course, there's some other roving stories around that. But um, so, so the ones that are included in the face maker are generally the ones that stood out. For instance, I really love Private Walter Ashworth's story. He was uh, injured on the first day of the Battle of the Somme. He fell forward into a crater and he laid there for three whole days. And he was eventually picked up. He was brought to Gilly's care. And at the time, his fiance broke off the engagement because of his disfigurement, which was really sad, very common experience for these men. But the friends, uh, the, the fiance's friend got wind of this and she began writing to Ashworth. And eventually she visited him at the hospital and the two fell in love and they ended up getting married. But after he was discharged from the army, he went back to work as a tailor's assistant. And his boss said that he had to work in the back of the shop because he didn't want anybody to look at this guy's face, which was horrible. So a lot of these wounds were inflicted outside of the battlefield. You know, these psychological wounds that these men experienced. So Ashworth eventually moved to Australia. He started a whole new life there. And many, many years later, the surgeon Harold Gillies bumped into him on that side of the world. And he said um, he wanted to have another go at Ashworth's face because he had learned so much as a reconstructive surgeon at that point. And Ashworth actually declined the offer. It seemed that he had made peace with the face that Gillies had given him so long ago when there seemed to be no hope of normalcy in his life. So I think that's a really lovely story. But of course, we have to remember that not everybody's story ended, you know, in this, this kind of neat way with a bow tied around it. But I do really like Ashworth's story in the book. So of course, um, yeah, one of the things that really stood out to me was just how badly the soldiers could be treated when they came back home with these kinds of mm -hmm. disfigurements. So um, the reconstructive surgery, it's very important for their mental health as well as their physical health. Yeah. And, you know, remember that the, the facial biases of this day also meant that Gillies was a product of that prejudice. I mean, arguably, Gillies wouldn't have had to do everything he had to do had we been able to accept the disfigurement um, and the facial differences in these men. Now, you have to restore function. So you have to restore the ability to swallow or to eat or to talk. But Gillies was obviously going far beyond this, and he was considering the aesthetics of the face so that it was deemed acceptable by society. I often say that this was a time with losing a limb made you a hero, but losing a face made you a monster to the society that was so intolerant of these facial differences. So they did face a lot of prejudice at the time. And, you know, people have asked me, well, have things gotten better? And I remind them that 
I'm not a spokesperson for the disability community or people with facial differences. So they would have to answer that. But I suspect that a lot of the prejudices that these men faced in 1917 wouldn't be that dissimilar to what people face today in society. I mean, you only have to look at Hollywood to know that this is true because, you know, disfigurement is really a lazy trope for evilness. So you have Darth Vader, um, you have Blofeld, you have Joker, um, Harvey Dent, he becomes evil only after he's disfigured. I mean, right. it's a really, it's, a, it's such a problem in Hollywood. You know, my, my husband and I were just going through like a list yesterday and there's just so many. I haven't seen Wonder Woman, but apparently Dr. Poison, she's disfigured. Oh, so yeah. Yeah, this is, the, I mean, when you start to really think about it, or like the Phantom of the Opera, he's disfigured, he wears a mask, he's he's kind of evil in the Phantom. So this is a really lazy trope. And it's, it's, it's uh, entrenched in this idea, this longstanding idea that disfigurement is associated with either criminality, because certain crimes in the past actually led to purposeful disfigurement, such as your nose being cut off, or disease. So you're looking at syphilis, which is very disfiguring in its final stages. You develop something called saddle nose where the nose kind of caves into the face. So those long-term beliefs and how those diseases were associated with morality follow us all the way till today. That's why this is still sort of a lazy trope for evilness that you see in Hollywood. Right. That must've been devastating for them to live through. And of course the process of the surgery, it could take multiple surgeries. Oh. It must've been incredibly painful. For, for years. I mean, some of these men were in Gilly's care for, for over a decade. You know, after the war, he continues to operate. He moves into the realm of cosmetic surgery as well. So plastic surgery predates Harold Gillies in World War I. In fact, the term plastic surgery is coined in 1798. Um, and at the time, plastic meant something that you could mold or you could shape. So in this case, a person's skin or soft tissue. Mm -hmm. And there are much, you know, older operations like rhinoplasty goes back thousands of years. But those attempts at altering a person's appearance tend to focus on really small areas of the face, such as the nose. Um, and it's really during World War One, that you have this massive need, remember the 280,000 men requiring some kind of facial surgery, that surgeons like Harold Gillies are able to try and test new methods and for this to become standardized and for plastic surgery to enter the modern era. So when the war is over, Gillies wants to continue operating as a plastic surgeon, but it's not really a discipline yet. So he starts to move into the realm of cosmetic surgery. So if you think of plastic surgery as a heading, and then underneath you have cosmetic and reconstructive, and today there's still equally both parts of plastic surgery. There are a lot of reconstructive surgeons. Um, and there are, of course, a lot of surgeons who focus on cosmetic and some surgeons do both. Uh, so it's still very important. So he starts to move into the realm of cosmetic surgery. He continues to operate on the soldiers requiring his help. And he performs the first phalloplasty on the first trans man in 1949, a trans man named Michael Dillon, who comes to him uh, during World War II. And then Gillies ends up operating on him after successfully, which is an amazing story and just goes to show how progressive Harold Gillies was. I thought that was fantastic. That really stood out. Oh my goodness. I highlighted it about four times. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, I mean, you would never know that that was happening that early. Mm -hmm. um, and Gillies is really well-placed at that point because he was actually working on men in World War II. I don't talk about this extensively in the book because the narrative is really focused on World War I, but he does operate during World War II. He introduces his cousin, Archibald McIndoe, to the strange new art of plastic surgery. And McIndoe becomes very famous for the guinea pig club. So there might 
be people out there thinking, is this about the guinea pig club? It's not the guinea pig club. It's the prequel. Um, so I'm dealing with World War One, but there is a Gillies connection there. And um, and because he's operating during World War Two, he's working on a lot of soldiers who've um, it had wounds on their genitals. And so he's very well placed to be able to do this phalloplasty surgery. And he stands behind Michael Dillon as well. Michael Dillon is eventually outed by the British press. It's a media frenzy. Michael Dillon is so harassed by the press that he ends up leaving Britain. And Gillies stood by him. And I said in the book that you know, there weren't that many people in 1949 who would have seen Michael Dillon as a man, but Gillies wasn't one of them. So it is an extraordinary story and, and certainly a big part of Gillies' own story as well. Right. And, and uh, Gillies is such an extraordinary character. Can you tell us a little bit about how he came to be this incredible plastic surgeon? Yeah, I mean, he's he's really funny, too. You know, my first book, Butchering Art, is about Joseph Lister, who's this Quaker surgeon. And he really, I felt, I always, that was one of the struggles with the Butchering Art was that Lister was kind of boring on some level, <laughs> which, you know, it made sense because, like, he's, he he had to be very calm in the face of all this pushback. He introduces germ theory to medicine and, and what Lister is doing is uh, revolutionary. So he is pushing the paradigm. He's smashing the paradigm up. Whereas Gillies is really doing something evolutionary. It's built out of need. He's not receiving a huge amount of pushback, although he is criticized later, um, you know, going into the cosmetic realm, there was always these like sort of ethical questions about how necessary that kind of surgery was. Mm-hmm. But um but he's a real character too. So unlike Lister, who is very kind of dry and, you know, almost beyond reproach, Gillies is a prankster. He's always pulling pranks. Um, he, the, in, at his hospital, the soldiers weren't allowed to drink or gamble, but he would dress up as this like alternative persona at night called, and he called himself Dr. Scroggy. And Dr. Scroggy would come in and bring champagne and oysters and he'd gamble with the guys. And I think that Gilly's relationship with these men was so important because he had to keep their spirits up and his ability to be lighthearted and, and sort of a jokester really kind of helped him as well because it was a heavy burden to carry. And there are so many amazing characters. The other one that really still, uh, stood out to me, I had to write down his name, uh, Auguste Charles Valadier, oh, uh, the oh one who gosh. converted his Rolls Royce into a mobile operating room. Yeah, How that was... <laughs> Yeah, so he's definitely my character. You know, when with the butchering art, I go around and talk about Robert Liston, who could take your leg off in under 30 seconds. And I always sort of relish telling the story to audiences. Charles Vladier is definitely that guy for me in this book. He has this Rolls Royce, which he retrofits with his own money with a dental chair. And he literally <laughs> drives it to the front under a hail of bullets. That was a direct quote, under a hail of bullets, you know, to help these men. And dentists actually weren't deployed to the front originally, which was a little bit unusual because in the 19th century, they used to say that an army that can bite can fight. And that referred to the idea that you used to have to bite the cartridges off. So your teeth had to actually be in pretty good working order. When you get to World War I, you don't have that kind of need to bite off the the cartridges. The ammunition is different. So teeth were in really bad shape. I think I read something like 50% of the men deployed to the front didn't even have a toothbrush. And this was a huge, I know it was, it was disgusting to our modern sensibilities, but also it created so many problems when, when you're talking about being hit in the face and you already have a lot of bacteria and a lot of issues going on in the mouth anyway. Um, So Charles Valadier goes to the front. He actually works all the way through World War I for free, which is amazing. He gave all of his services for free. And he opens a little specialty unit in France, pretty close to the front, 
Um, he begins operating on facial wounds, and he's the one who actually introduces Harold Gillies to this great need of facial reconstruction. And Gillies has so much respect for dentists that when he opens his own hospital, he brings dentists on board. And this is actually unusual because a lot of surgeons at this time didn't respect dentists. Um, they weren't working in a collaborative manner. So Gillies, he brings in artists who paint, you know, uh, pictures of this man, create pictorial records. He brings in um, x-ray technicians, of course, dental surgeons, all kinds of people in a very collaborative way that are working to, towards reconstructing the face. And that really allowed him and the standards to rise across the board at his hospital. And he, he must have learned so much there, too. Um, I, I think I remember reading that um, Valadier taught him bone grafting. That's right. Yeah, I, he did a, um, a, a procedure where he actually was able to create bone growth by stretching. I'm, I'm Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris, but you know, I'm not the kind of doctor that can save people's lives. I was like, to remind <laughs> people, I could tell you how people tried to save people's lives. The, one of the challenges with this book really was that a lot of the techniques that are being developed are, are pretty close to techniques that we still use in medicine today. So it was really hard. Like the technical language was so difficult to work through. And my husband, who's a caricaturist and actually Gillies himself worked with a caricaturist named Henry Tonks, who's featured in the book. Um, he had to like, my, my husband would have to come and look at the case books and I'd have to say, what, how, what is he doing here? I can't visualize how he's rebuilding this face. And then I'd have to take whatever Adrian was telling me and then figure out how to put that in language that wasn't off-putting to a general reader, because it's important to me that people can pick up the book. They don't have to have any medical background, certainly, because I don't, uh, or any history background. They could just fall into the story. Um, so, but it, but it, it could get very technical and some of the techniques that Vladia used are actually still used today. So it's fascinating. He was doing that in 1915. That's absolutely incredible. Yeah. He really stood out. I was trying to picture what that car would look like, you know, with a dental chair in it and everything. <laughs> I have a picture of it. I'll send it to you. Yeah, oh, I do. Amazing. I'm going to, okay. <laughs> I'm going to use it in my, and actually it went up for auction. I believe it was in 2012. It's it sold in auction. So it's still out there. Someone owns it. And I, I hope they pick up the face maker and they learn the incredible history behind that. It doesn't have the dental chair anymore, but that, that car could definitely tell a lot of stories, I'm sure. And that it survived so long through the war. Yeah. And everything. That's absolutely amazing. Um, now, of course, Gillies was, um, he was such a character. And just to go back to, to some of his early stories, uh, he had an unusual job interview involving golf. Oh, gosh, yeah. how, how does that go exactly? That's funny that I love to see what people sort of pick up on and what they want to talk about. Yeah, he, he was an incredible sportsman. And he was sort of one of those infuriating people who was really good at everything he, he put his hand to. He was, he was a good, he was a competent artist. Um, he was a great sportsman. He was very competitive. The competitiveness really served him as a facial reconstruction surgeon uh, at his hospital, because as he brought loads of other surgeons onto his, to his team in the hospital, there was a lot of competition amongst these surgeons. And again, the standards rose across the board. When he was interviewing for his first job in a private clinic in London as an ENT surgeon at the time, this is before the war, he went in for the interview and his boss uh, was just interested in talking to him about his golf championship. And so he ended up getting the job based on that. And there's another story also in the book where um, his private secretary had to get Gilly's license renewed and the, the, the clock was against them. And there was all these people um, in the building and the official 
recognize Gilly's name, not because at, the, at that point he was this amazing surgeon, but because he was this golf champion. So it's a, it's a funny side story. He just had these really kind of random bits of luck as he went through life. Yeah. And then um, uh, Gillies himself, he had a, a wrist injury. Is that right? Uh, he had an old wrist injury, but he was able to, to overcome that. And then, um, of course, not only to become this incredible golfer, but also this incredible surgeon. Yeah, that's right. He As a child, I, he slipped down the banister and he um, injured his wrist. And so I think he even created instruments, surgical instruments to compensate for this later in life. I mean, he was just incredible. And I think that, you know, when you look back in the history of medicine, you always think that was the right person at the right time. And with Joseph Lister, it was the fact that he had the scientific background. He could understand Louis Pasteur's germ theory. He was able to kind of marry these things. So he was the right person at the right time. With Harold Gillies, the same thing. You know, he was very well-rounded, which I think is unusual for someone in medicine. He was very creative. He, Like I said, he was a competent artist. And when it comes to rebuilding someone's face, you have to be very visual and, and very creative. So this isn't just a scientific endeavor. And Gillies himself uh, enjoyed improving the face beyond what it had originally looked like, looked like, you know, he wasn't just restoring what they looked like before the war, he would say, you know, what kind of nose do you want? And so he, he really took pride in kind of creating a face. Um, it didn't necessarily have to look like the face that had been destroyed. So I think that he was definitely the right person at the right time in the right moment, because until World War One happened, there wasn't really this kind of need for facial reconstruction. Right. But, um, and of course, because of his work, uh, that was very, very influential on modern medicine as well. So um, are we still using his practices now? Yeah, there's a lot of techniques that are still used. And, you know, I think people, there's, there's people that will say to me, well, the good that came out of World War One is you have all of these incredible medical advances. So you have the birth of plastic surgery and facial reconstruction. And in parallel to that, you have advances in anesthesia because it was very difficult to anesthetize these men. Mm-hmm. Now, if you think about a face being destroyed, um, it's, it would be hard to put a mask over the face. So that was one of the challenges. The other aspect was that the mask would then cover the area that the surgeon needed to be working on. So at the same time as facial reconstruction is, um, is developing, you also get advances in anesthesia. So you get the development of intertracheal anesthesia at the end of the war by a guy named Ivan McGill, who worked with Gillies. You get um, advances in in blood transfusions. You get the uh, blood banking for the first time in empty shell casings. So there's all these wonderful inventions that have served us very long after the guns were silenced on the Western Front. But I also came to the grim realization halfway through my research that as wonderful as these advances were, they also served to prolong the war at the time, because as doctors and nurses got better at patching these men up, of course, they were sending them back to the front. So they were feeding the war machine inadvertently. And I think that that's really important to acknowledge as well. Um, but, but yes, certainly a lot of what came out of World War I's continues to serve us today. And Gillies is still a huge influence on a lot of plastic surgeons today. A lot of them are so excited about this book coming out because they know a lot about him. And, and it's a subject that people don't talk about very often. Um, and it's incredible to have, to have this book that, that has all of it in one place. Um, I really can't re- recommend it highly enough. It's so good. Um, how did you um, get interested in this subject? This is, it's funny that you asked me that because, you know, I was preparing for interviews. I'm heading into a book tour. I'm actually going to be doing a physical book tour as well. If anybody's out there and interested in meeting me in the, um, in the U.S., I'm going to have a schedule hopefully pretty soon. My publicist will hopefully have that. So I'll be putting it up on social media. Um, 
but I thought, you know, people are going to ask me, why did I write this book? And I, but I still didn't really prepare for the answer, which is really <laughs> ridiculous. Cause I, I've been, it's kind of been cooking in me, but I, you know, I have a PhD in the history of science and medicine from Oxford, but I call myself first and foremost, a storyteller these days. And the most important thing to me is that there's a really good gutsy story there. I knew nothing about world war one. I. I mean, I cannot emphasize how little I knew about World War One going into this, which is why it took me five years to write this book. Um, I didn't, I barely even understood why it happened. Um, and so I was really starting from zero, but as a medical historian, I knew a little bit about Gillies and his patients. And it just seemed like there was a really epic human story there about the war that hadn't been told in the biggest way it could be told. Of course, there are academic historians and um, other, other people working on Gillies and facial reconstruction who do wonderful work, but not in this kind of narrative nonfiction way that I like to write my books. So that's really why I did it, which is, it's, you know, and my PhD also, by the way, is in 17th century alchemy. Wow. (laughs) I have, I have no practical skills, by the way, none. Thank God someone actually pays me to publish books because otherwise (laughs) I would be out on the street. I'm telling you. Um, But, but my, my supervisor at Oxford, it was when I wrote the butchering art, she was like, wow, you've really gone outside of your, your expertise. And now I'm even in the 20th century, but I'll tell you one thing. I mean, I should probably never say never, but I won't, I never want to go back into the 20th century because the, there's all kinds of issues I hadn't been aware of, like the copyrights of these letters and these diaries. I had to get permission from families to, to quote, you know, extensively from some of this material. And the other thing was in Britain, and you'll understand this having lived here for some time, there's a lot of complicated rules about um, how to access patient files, how to access anything having to do uh, with real people who have died in the past. And in some cases, I had to prove that these people were still were actually dead. I mean, can you imagine if I found one like a 140 year old man still alive, you know, who could tell me about being injured in World War One? But it was it was a really complicated process to get access to the patient files. And I appreciate why that is. But that was that made the process a lot longer. Hence the five years between the butchering art and the face maker. Right. Well, it's an incredible achievement. I mean, you really pulled it off. Um, so, uh, of course, you have uh, the audiobook coming out as well, and that is actually read by one of Gilly's descendants. Is that right? Yeah. So, this is funny too, because with um, the butchering art, they sent me a lot. So when you, when you get your book translated into audio, they send you different actors names. And so with the butchering art, they sent me a lot of female voices. And I said, you know, I just felt like it, it, it should be a male voice. Cause it was Lister's story. I know that's weird because I'm a female writer, but I just, it felt like it should be a male voice. So they sent me this voice actor named Ralph Lister. And I was like, was he related to Joseph Lister? And they were like, he is just randomly. He was a voice actor. And I said, well, I don't even care what he sounds like. He's got to read the audiobook to the butchering art. So when I started writing The Face Maker, I realized that um, Harold Gillies' great-great-nephew is a very famous actor named Daniel Gillies. Some people might know him from The Vampire Diaries. He's got a, a, a couple of different TV shows out there. And I tweeted at him and said, well, I, I have to get, you know, in the tradition of, you know, a distant relative reading these stories. And he came on board, which is crazy because he has millions of followers, which would be great for me as an author. 
Um, and I've been told that he recorded it about two weeks ago. I've been told that he would keep pausing and saying, oh, I didn't know that. So I love that he gets to learn about his ancestor through this book, which is really awesome. That would be such an amazing experience. I'm definitely going to get the audiobook as well. That's yeah, really he's cool. got He's got a new, uh, a New Zealand twang as well. And so Gillies, although he lived most of his life in Britain, he actually spent his childhood in New Zealand. So he, I, I feel like he would have also had like a really similar accent. So yeah, it's, it's great. And um, his father actually contacted me very early on in this process to say, uh, he was excited about the book coming out. And then I forgot that this this man, John Gillies, was Daniel Gillies' father. So about two months ago, I wrote John Gillies this really formal email. And I said, excitingly, the Hollywood actor, Daniel Gillies, who's his son, which I forgot. <laughs> you know, I was like, excitingly, he'll be <laughs> reading the audio. And, and John wrote me back and was like, great, I'm glad. I don't know why you phrased it in such a... <laughs> <laughs> I I'm familiar with who he is. He's my son. I know um, him very well. <laughs> yeah, I know I know him. I know him. And and also when we started corresponding, his it, John Gillies is quite funny. He he wanted to assure me that he was not. John Gillies, who apparently there's a there's a John Gillies who's a serial killer like out in Australia. Oh, <laughs> I said, well, you know, I'm I I like a good story, so I probably wouldn't have stopped the correspondence even if you were the same John Gillies, um, because that would have also been a great story. But yeah, so I'm excited to have the Gillies family involved. I'd love to see an adaptation, um, but you know that's always a big dream for an author, so we'll see. Yeah, well, fingers crossed. Well, um, so what's next for you? Where uh, where can people find you? So, so I will be doing a book tour in the U.S., um, you know, that, which is a surprise because we've all been locked away. So I'm, I'm going to be very socially awkward. Get ready for that. If you come to my events, <laughs> I haven't interacted with people in so long. A lot of Americans don't even realize because in the U.K., we had severe lockdowns. Like you couldn't even leave my village. You could get fined. It was, it was really extreme. So I feel like I've been kind of hidden away for the last couple of years. So I'm excited to get out there and to interact with people again. My next book um, is about a Victorian surgeon named Joseph Bell, who is the real life inspiration for Sherlock Holmes. He oh taught Conan Doyle. I know it's so fun. It's going to be this romp through Victorian forensics. And I've been working my way through Bell's diary, which is this 500 page document. And it's I think it's just going to be a really fun a um, little bit of a switch in tone again, and a little bit of a different focus. So I'm excited about that one as well. That's going to be incredible. Oh my goodness. Well, everybody, again, uh, Lindsay's new book is The Facemaker, and we'll be sharing all this information on our Instagram as well. Uh, we'll have all of our links. And of course, we'll post a review for you too. So Lindsay, I cannot thank you enough. Thank you so much for thank talking you. to us today. And congratulations. Once again, we'd like to thank Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris for taking the time to talk to us today. The Facemaker is out now, and you are not going to want to miss it. You can find Lindsay at drlindsayfitzharris.com. She's on Twitter at drlindsayfitz and Instagram at drlindsayfitzharris. And speaking of Instagram, photos from today's show will, of course, be up on ours at Dirty Sexy History. This week on Patreon, we'll also be posting the video of our conversation with Lindsay. So if you'd like to check that out, you can find us at patreon.com slash dirty sexy history, which leads me, of course, to thank our superstar patrons on Patreon. We have Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Charlotte Collings, Rachel Cooney, Ayana DaCosta, Michelle Dunbar, James Finch, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, Emma Young, Janine Meberg, 
Jessica Miller, Shannon Roth, Icy Sedgwick, and Kelly Simon. Thank you all so much. Now, Patreon is hugely important to this show, which is why I thank our patrons at the end of every episode. While I'm on sick leave, you guys are quite literally keeping the lights on, and I cannot thank you enough. If you would like to support the show, you can find us again at patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory. And speaking of supporting the show, we have merch now. Thanks to the folks at Tee Public, you can now get t-shirts, mugs, stickers, and tote bags featuring historical abortifacients or 19th century sex furniture. We even have mugs that say BMI is bullshit, because God knows it is. The link is in our Instagram bio at Dirty Sexy History, and we will, of course, keep you updated as new designs are released. As always, if you enjoy the show, please rate, review, and subscribe, or you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Dirty Sexy History. If you'd like to contact us or read more posts from our six years of archives, check out our website at DirtySexyHistory.com. Thanks for sticking around, guys. We'll see you next time. Dirty Sexy History is an independent podcast by Jessica Kale and Dr. John Jenkins. You can find us at DirtySexyHistory.com.